I, I am excited about what we're going to talk about today, even though it is not comfortable for me. This is not a comfortable topic, uh, but it's something we need. We're in a series right now where we're looking at how God is not just making new people out of you and me. He's making us into a new kind of people. He's making not just individual men and women into, into individual disciples. He is making one race out of many. He is making one family where there once were many families. And that's why there's 59 different times in the New Testament that the words one another are used. And we've been looking in this series about what it means to love one another, about what it means to forgive one another, about what it means to bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. And today we're going to look at one that's, that's going to strike some of you as a little bit uncomfortable a little bit awkward, and it's the word admonish one another. So we're going to talk about that, what that means, but let me tell you where the title of my sermon came from. I'm not the greatest sermon titler. If I ever come up with one that you think is really creative, it's probably because I stole it from someone else. But today, the title is The Wounds of a Friend, and I did. I stole this from Solomon. So Proverbs 27.6 says, Faithful are the wounds of a friend, profuse are the kisses of an enemy. Now, profuse is not a word we use a lot these days. I bet you haven't used it all day. But what it means is often or many, uh, and, and the point it's making is if someone flatters you, if someone tells you what you want to hear, if someone uh, makes you feel good all the time, aren't, they aren't necessarily your best friend. Whereas someone who occasionally hurts your feelings in the service of the truth, someone who says things that upsets you, but it turns out to be exactly what you needed to hear, that's a true friend. And that's what, what, that's what it means to admonish. I, I, I picture a secret service agent, right? Have you ever seen what happens when there's a threat to the president's life or, or someone else they're guarding? They will grab that person and hustle them off the stage so fast, it, it basically gives them whiplash. Um, they, will, they will throw them into the backseat of a car and then dive on top of them. They'll do whatever they have to do. Now, do they bruise the person they're helping? Probably. Do they shock them a little bit? Do they make them feel like, wait, what a second... Yes, they do all those things. They don't have time to stop and say, uh, Mr. President, there happens to be a threat. We need to get you out of here. With your permission, I will take... No, they grab them and run them because that's what it takes to keep them safe. A true friend will hurt you if it's what it takes to rescue you. So I, I want to show you our passage for today, Colossians 3.16 Colossians 3.16 says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Now, obviously, there's a lot there we could talk about. We could get into what it means to, to why it's so important for us to sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. We could talk about the word of Christ dwelling you richly. But what I want to show you is that phrase, admonishing one another. Admonish is not a word we use a lot either. We don't use it profusely, you might say. See what I did there? But what it means, so I'll give you a definition for it. The word admonish literally means, this is Webster's definition, to warn, rebuke, or notify of a fault. How many people here love to be notified of a fault in them? Anybody? Anybody? Okay, good. At least you're all honest. So here's another passage of Scripture where that term is used. 1 Corinthians 4.14 this is Paul writing to the Corinthians, and he says, I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. And that reminds me of something that my dad said to me when I was in seventh grade. So seventh grade was the first year I got to play organized 
tackle football for the school. And I, growing up, football was all I ever thought about, so this was a big deal for me. Uh, it was also the first year in Texas for a new policy called No Pass, No Play, in which in the public school, if you failed a class any six weeks, you couldn't participate in sports or any other extracurricular activity the next six weeks. It was also the year that I decided in my 13-year-old wisdom that I just didn't like doing homework. So those three things all converged in the first three weeks of our school year because our coaches had decided that since this new policy was in effect, uh, they wanted teachers to let them know if any student of theirs was doing poorly so they would know, oh, we're going to be without so-and-so. Frankly, I don't think they cared if they had to do without me. I wasn't that integral to the team, but I was part of the policy. So it was that one day I come home. This is early in the school year, still September. I come home. I don't know where my mom was. I can't remember that detail, but I remember my dad meeting me. And my dad said to me, the school called your mom today and told them you are currently failing three classes. Broke your mother's heart. I want you to know. That if you continue on this path, there is not a single college that will accept you. And you may think that you're going to come home and live with us, but you won't. Because I will put you in the army. <laughs> he said those words to me. My dad did a tour in Vietnam. He knew what he was talking about. Now, you talk to my dad today, he has no memory of that conversation. I promise you that happened. And it made a real impression on me. And my dad, I think, would say, along with 1 Corinthians 14, I am not saying these things to make you ashamed, although if you get ashamed, you probably deserve it. But I'm admonishing you as my beloved child. My dad scared me straight that day. I don't know which one affected me more, the thought of compulsory military service or the idea that I had broken my virtuous mother's heart. I mean, he literally said those words. But either way, it scared me straight, and I started to change. So we are commanded to admonish one another within the body of Christ. Now, whose job is that? Obviously, that's something I need to do as a pastor. And when I get up, I owe you the truth of the gospel. And I can give you some credit because you as a congregation, whenever I get up and I have something to say that I know, ooh, this is really going to be painful for people to hear, I, consistently the people of this church come up to me after that sermon every time and say, good job. You know, that really stepped on my toes, but that's what I needed to hear. And that, that's incredibly gratifying for me as a pastor to know that I have that kind of church. But what I want to ask you is, how do you respond when it's not a pastor, just an ordinary Christian who admonishes you? And what do you, how do you handle it when it's not somebody standing up in the pulpit, but somebody in your face, somebody who takes you aside and, and confronts you? face-to-face. How do you respond to that? Because it says in 1 Thessalonians 5.14, we urge you brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. That word idle, when it says admonish the idle, we see that and we think the lazy people. And I think none of us would hesitate to admonish a lazy person, but literally the Greek term that Paul uses there means undisciplined. Admonish those who are undisciplined. And we're all undisciplined in some area of our lives. We may be buttoned up over here, but over here we're letting things kind of go loose and somebody needs to confront us. And when it says brothers admonish the idol, don't get the impression, ladies, that that's only something that men have to do because the word Paul uses is the generic word that means basically all y'all. Because remember, y'all is a biblical word. We talked about this last week. All y'all better admonish one another. Admonish the idol. So how do we do that? Because I got to be honest, 
Nine-tenths of us almost never do this. And the one-tenth of us who do, most of the time do it wrong. So how do we admonish one another? What I'm going to do is I want to talk about three different stories from Scripture about people admonishing others, and what principle can we learn from those three stories? What, what three principles can we learn from each of those stories? So principle number one, talk to me, not about me. So I get this from the story of David and his sin with Bathsheba. This summer, if you weren't with us, we had a long series on the life of David. I enjoyed it. I hope you enjoyed it half as much. But I didn't enjoy talking about when David fell, when David uh, slept with the wife of one of his soldiers, one of his faithful warriors, and then in an attempt to cover up his sin, he engineered the death, the murder of that man. I mean, terrible thing. But he's the king. He could have gotten away with it except that God made it known to his prophet, Nathan. So imagine you're Nathan, you're the prophet of of God, and you know something about the king that no one else knows. You know this horrible thing that the king has done. You have two choices. You can go confront the king. You can march into the throne room and point a finger in his face, but that's suicide because this is David. He isn't just any king. This is a warrior king. David's killed more people than smallpox. He is deadly, and he can snap his fingers and have you beheaded, have your head on a pike before you even breathe. Or you can do what most of us would do. You can get together with some of your friends and say, hey, here's something that I know about the king. I'm really worried. What do you think I should do? Now, let me ask you something. Would that be the easier path? Absolutely. Would that path make you popular? Do you think there are people in Jerusalem who would enjoy hearing this dirt on the king? Yeah, you'd be a star at every dinner party you went to. Hey, Nathan, come tell us what you told me about David. These people don't know it. Come tell us. And you could couch it in terms of we're really worried about the king. What should we do? I think we need to pray for him. Let me tell you everything I know. But what it really is, is gossip. When you talk about someone and you share something that should be shared to their face, that's gossip. What does Nathan do? Nathan goes into the throne room. You can read about it in 2 Samuel 12, and he confronts King David, and he literally saves David's life by drawing him to Christ. And that sound you're hearing is the sound of God's wrath passing by (laughs) David as he chose to repent. Okay, I'm messing with you, but... You know, if you're a Christian, especially if you're a young Christian, let me just warn you, one of the things that's hardest about being a young Christian is when you watch people who you admire in the faith, people who are mature in following Christ, who would never lift a finger to hurt somebody else, who would never even utter a curse word, who don't even raise their voice, people who have mastered so many of the, of the fruits of the Spirit, and yet they still gossip. And you'll see them take the coward's way out over and over again instead of confronting. Let me give you three examples. Now, none of these are examples from our church, but they are examples that happen in a church, in churches. So, first example, Bob is eating out. These are made-up names. Bob is eating out. He happens to see Dave in the restaurant. Dave doesn't see him. Dave is there with his kids. Dave is angry with his kids. He can tell Bob can because Dave is griping at them, and he's getting louder and louder, and the kids are upset, but Dave doesn't care. He's just angry, and Bob's thinking, oh my goodness, I hope he's not this way all the time, because that would be a terrible dad to grow up with. But Bob doesn't go and talk 
to Dave about it. He doesn't take him aside and say, hey, listen, I know, I know you're probably having a bad day. I just, I just want to make sure you can't talk to your kids that way. You're going you're gonna to hurt them. He doesn't do that because he thinks, oh, I don't really know Dave all that well. He may not take it well from me. But anytime Dave's name comes up in casual conversation, Bob finds a way to work it into the conversation. You know, I saw him once, and I think he's pretty mean to his kids. Second example. Julie hears a rumor at church that one of the kids in the youth group is on drugs, that has, has started, uh, has gotten into the drug scene, and this upsets her because this young man is the son of a couple in her life group, and she really likes them, and that makes her upset. But she doesn't go talk to this young man, she doesn't go talk to the parents, because she thinks, well, it's really none of my business. But she makes sure and shares it at lunch with all the other people from her life group who are there. A month or so passes, and the parents find out that their son is involved in drugs. They also find out, just as troubling, that everyone in their youth group, most of the people of the church knew, but no one came to them and said so. Third example. So Rick loves the music at his church. He loves specifically organ music. He loves that organ. It makes this such a majestic sound, and it just makes him feel closer to God, this idea that God is so majestic and, and over us. One Sunday, he comes, and there's nobody at the organ. Instead, there's a guy playing a cello. And after church is over, uh, everybody goes out to eat together, and people are talking about, well, the music was different today. I really liked it. And, and, and Rick says, yeah, but you know what? My brother's church there was a Sunday where all of a sudden the pianist and the organist were just gone, and before you knew it, they had like fog machines and laser lights and guys riding motorcycles up and down the aisles, and he said, I bet you that's what they're playing in here. They're just trying to sneak it in on us. And people get upset, and they're thinking, well, is this really happening? But nobody ever goes to the music minister and says, what's the deal? And if they would have, he would have said, well, this young man grew up in our church, He's studying cello at a college right now, and, and he was home for the weekend. I just thought it would be neat to give him an opportunity. This is no big change. It's just a one-Sunday thing. Listen, I've done my share of gossiping. Can I just confess before you? I can look back on my life, and I can, I can look back at times when I try to be funny by making fun of someone who wasn't there. I can look back on times when I, I was angry with someone, so I vented about that person to other people, to my family, to my friends. I can't swear to you, I don't still do that sometimes, but here's the thing. I've also been in the shoes of that music minister. I've also had heard that people were saying things that I had decided as a pastor when I really hadn't. If someone would just would have come to me and said, hey, Jeff, what's the deal with this? I could have told them. I've also seen the damage that happens to families when people share what they think is going on or what they heard without ever going to that mom, that dad, that young man, that young woman. You see, when you, when you talk about someone, you spread divisiveness, you end friendships, you hurt reputations, you split churches. When you talk to someone, is there a possibility that person could get angry, could get upset? Absolutely. But there's also a distinct possibility that healing happens. That's the only way healing occurs by speaking the truth in love. Talk to me, not about me. That is my desire. That is your desire. Second principle, put yourself in my shoes. 
So the way we confront people matters. I know there are people in this room who, as I was talking about this last uh, principle, said to themselves, you know, I don't have a problem with that. I'm not a gossiper. If I got a problem with someone, I go talk to them. And I know that's probably true of at least a handful of you in this room because God made you bold. If you've got the, the ability to say hard things to people and then sleep well that night, that is a gift, my friend. You've been given a tremendous gift by God. But let me tell you, you can be, one of the, you can be a, a fantastic tool in his arsenal, or you can be the worst member of the church with that gift. It depends on how you use it. Because it's not enough just to know the truth and to speak the truth. You're supposed to speak the truth in love. It matters how you confront. And my principle for this is another story from the life of David, and that's the story of David and Abigail and her husband Nabal. Now, you probably know that back in the ancient world, people's names meant something. You didn't just name someone after a celebrity or after something, uh, a sound you liked, uh, something you think sounded interesting. You named them a principle that you thought summed up their character. And so Nabal's name was fool. That's what Nabal means in Hebrew, fool. Now, two things. First of all, his parents, I'm sure, did not name him that. He acquired that name over time. He earned it, right? Secondly, fool in Hebrew thought did not mean what it means today. When you call someone a fool today, you're calling them unintelligent, ignorant. But biblically speaking, you can be a highly educated fool. You can be a genius-level intellect and still be a fool because a fool in Hebrew thought is someone who behaves as if there is no God. A fool is someone who says, I don't care what this does to other people. I don't care what God thinks of what I'm doing. I'm going to do what I want to do. So Nabal was proud of his name. He was proud to be a fool. He was proud to live however he wanted. And he happened to insult David. This was in the days before David was king. He's still just a warrior running from King Saul. And David feels insulted by Nabal and decides, okay, I'll take care of this fool. And he sits on, gets on his horse, gets mounted up on his horse with 400 of his close friends armed to the teeth, and they're riding toward Nabal's house to uh, basically take him apart piece by piece. And Abigail, Nabal's wife, intercepts this group of 400 men and confronts David. But how she does it is genius. She brings donkey loads of food, first of all. She bows down before him. She says, listen, I know you're destined to be king of Israel. Everyone knows. I know you're righteous and the present king, King Saul, is not. You're the innocent party right here. But don't throw all of that away. The calling of God, your innocence, your righteousness, don't throw all of that away just for one guy, one fool who happened to have hurt your feelings. You'll regret this later, David, if you do it. And David agrees. Because she didn't go in with guns blazing, because she didn't say, how dare you come after my husband, because she didn't insult him. She persuaded him. She said to herself, if I were a young man like David, how would I want to be confronted? She saved the lives of every man in her home because he'd already decided he's going to kill every male in the house of Nabal. He sa she saved every life in that house because she got into his skin, because she put herself in his shoes. I once pastored a church that had one of those signs out front where you had the changeable message every week. You had to pull off letters and put on letters. And that job was the job of our associate pastor, Brother Jim. And I'm glad it was his job. I would not be good at that job. I'm not good at Twitter, and that's 140 characters. This is even fewer. Jim had a way of finding 
a way to, to, to say something profound in just a short sentence. And I remember one message he put out there one week. It said, it is just as important to be kind as it is to be right. And that's so profound. And if you knew Jim, he's still at that church, you'd know he wasn't saying that because he doesn't value truth. This is a man who is in, intensely interested in us believing what is true. He believes the Word of God, and, and he doesn't want to vary from the true doctrines of the faith. What he's saying, though, is it doesn't matter if you know what's true, and if you're saying what is true, if you say it in an unkind way, it's worse than not saying it at all. Because the person you speak to will be turned away from God because you attacked them, because you insulted them instead of approaching them in a way that is kind. Third thing, third principle, don't let nice get in the way. When you, in order to admonish people, you can't worry about what's nice. And I know you just said, well, but but you need to be kind. I'm going to tell you the difference between kind and nice in just a moment. But my example is not as well known as the other two. This is found in Galatians chapter 2. And it's about a day when Peter was visiting the church at Antioch. So Antioch was a church in the ancient world that was, that was very multiracial. It was half Jewish, half Gentile. All different nationalities were part of that congregation. And Paul was one of the five elders of that church. Peter was visiting. Now, Peter was the first of the apostles to ever preach the gospel to Gentiles. He was a pioneer. He preached in the home of Cornelius and all these, all these Romans, all these Gentiles got saved. But it's been a while since then. So Peter comes to Antioch and he's visiting with the church members and he's very conspicuously choosing to only associate with the Jewish members of the church. He's only eating with them. He's only talking to them. And Paul comes up to him and says, Peter, you're a hypocrite. You're, you're holding my Gentile brothers to a standard that neither I or, nor you, Jews, we can't, we can't follow those principles. Why are you holding them to the same standards? Why are you casting them aside and acting like they're lesser than us? And Peter, he didn't even think about it. He, he had not thought about what he was doing. He was just doing things the way he was raised. You know, growing up, Peter was taught that Gentiles are less than Jews, that we're the chosen people, and if, if, if God has a plan for them, it's probably just to make the fires of hell a little hotter. Uh, you know, it, we, we're the chosen ones. They're the uncircumcised dogs. Okay, God's let some of them into the kingdom through Jesus. That's how great God's grace is. But surely, surely, if I want to be seen as a leader, I can't associate with them until Paul calls him out. And you got to imagine, if you're in that crowd that day and you see Paul confront Peter, you're thinking, what are you doing, Paul? This is Peter. I mean, there's only been two people in history that walked on water, and he was one of them. This is the guy who Jesus pointed to and said, upon this rock, I will build my church. This is the one who stood up on Pentecost Day and, and preached the gospel and thousands got saved. I mean, this is Peter, the head of the church. He raised a woman from the dead. How can you talk to him this way? What Paul did that day was not nice, but it was right. It's what had to be done. You see, and this is hard for me to say, but sometimes nice can keep us from accomplishing God's will. Sometimes nice can be the worst thing you can be led by. There's a difference between being nice and being kind. Being nice is about following certain rules of etiquette and protocol, which is good, I think we can all agree. Nice is about not offending people, and I like that too. But ultimately, nice is really about making sure everybody likes us, everybody's happy with us. 
And nice is fine. I prefer nice people to rude and sensitive people, but nice is a second-rate virtue. Y'all, Jesus wasn't always nice. You don't crucify nice people. Nice people don't get hated and beaten and nailed to a cross. That just doesn't happen. you got to make somebody mad for that to happen to you. Nice is not listed as a fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5, but kindness is. Kindness is taking the time to discern somebody's needs and meeting those needs as best you can. A kind person isn't worried about what you think of him or her. She just wants to do what needs to be done. He just wants to say what has to be said but they do it in the right way. So Paul on that day in Galatians 2, Paul probably made Peter mad. It would, if I had to bet on it, I bet Peter walked out of that room angry. But he's saying to himself, you know, I cut off a guy's ear once. And probably people around him were angry too. But Peter changed. Because Paul confronted him, Peter confessed. He repented. He got right. And a racial divide in the church that could have split the church forever, was healed. See, what he did that day wasn't nice, but it was kind. I don't know how any of this hits you. I can imagine there are people in this room who, if they were honest with themselves, would say, yes, I do have a problem with gossip. I don't, I, I don't like to call it that. It's, it's more like venting, or it's more like I just need to get this off my chest. But actually, the things I'm saying behind, about them behind their backs are things they wouldn't appreciate if they were there to hear them. Yes, I have a problem with gossiping. Or there's people in this room who would say, yeah, I'm that person you talked about. I'm very bold. I, I like to get things off. I like to say things. I like to say what's on my mind. I like to be right. But I have to admit, I end up making people mad instead of bringing about change. I end up hurting people and not in a redemptive way. I need to learn to be kind. And then there are people in this room, and I bet there's a whole lot of people in this room, and I'm one of them, who would have to say, you know, there have been times when I should have said something, but I didn't because I was afraid somebody might be mad. I should have said something, but I, I didn't because I was afraid it would make things awkward between me and this person over here, and I've missed opportunities when I could have spoken the truth in love. All of us, my bet is all of us fit into one of those three categories, maybe two out of three. Maybe all three, if that's possible. So what do we do? See, the, the exciting thing is in Galatians 2.20, after Paul tells the story about confronting Peter, he says these words, Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. So what Paul's saying there is, I'm not trying to make myself out to be a hero. When I confronted Peter, it wasn't because I'm smarter than him or I'm better than him. It's just because Jesus was using me as an instrument, right? then because the old Paul, the Paul that used to be, I was a Pharisee. I was proud. I would have blasted Peter and I would have ruined everything. But because the old Paul is dead and buried, crucified with Christ, there's a new Paul here and now Jesus is living through me. So whenever I say the right thing, it's because Jesus spoke through me and I want to be used by him. You see, what that says to you and me is, yeah, it doesn't matter that you're not capable of these things, neither am I. When Jesus died on the cross, it wasn't just to save you from hell. It was to save you from the person you are and would be. It was to make you someone new. So that the old you can be crucified so that the new you 
can be Christ living through you. And you do and you say the things He would do and say. And that happens when we come to Him daily and we say, Lord, I'll just confess to you I have a gossip problem, so help me to hold my tongue. Help me to speak the truth and love to the person who's hurting and not speak about them when they're not around. Lord, I have a problem being rude and insensitive and, and just speaking my mind when it's not appropriate and in ways that aren't helpful, so teach me humility. Teach me kindness. Teach me when I need to speak and when I need to hold back and how I need to speak. Help me to put myself in the shoes of the people I'm confronting so that it res- the response then is transformation. Lord, I've got a problem. I care too much what others think of me. I'm being nice, but what I'm really doing is trying to get them to like me. So help me, Lord, to be bold enough. How many of you need to pray for boldness? I know I do. Lord, help me to be bold enough to speak the truth in love. Come to Him with those things. Can you imagine what this church is going to be like as the Lord continues to change us? I mean, this is a great church already. I love being part of this church, but can you imagine as each of us grow in maturity in Christ and become the kind of people that others look at and say, gosh, I want what you have. Can you imagine the impact this church is going to make as we continue to see more and more people in that baptistry saying, this church helped me become a disciple of Jesus. And that happens not just because we're nice people. In fact, if that's all we are, it won't happen. It happens as we speak the truth to one another in love, as we admonish one another in all wisdom. So pray that God would change you and pray that through changing each one of us, He would change us as a body into who we're meant to be.